0: It's good to be with you as we uh, take on part two of salvation and sovereignty. Uh, like I said, for those of you here last time, or you or you listened online, I really hope that it was a blessing to you. Uh, my, my my intention as we're teaching these things, uh, as these are in some sense the the deep things of God, right there, uh, and I and so I hope it does challenge you a bit. Hope it does expand your thinking, uh, but I also pray and hope that it's something that is encouraging to you, that's, that stirs you to want to sing, that stirs you to want to praise God, to tell more people about him. Um, if our doctrine doesn't uh, lead us to share the gospel, to praise him more, to live uh, more holy lives, to want to pursue him in prayer and study and know him more, uh, then it is just a cold doctrine, and I don't want that. So. And so we continue with part two, just a quick recap of last time we we were talking about really six points defining sometimes what's called Reformed Theology, sometimes what's called Calvinism. Those are just words to help us group something together. All right, So we shouldn't be afraid of labels. It's just kind of a shorthand to say, this is a way we organize these group of doctrines. Uh, I'm referring to them, and they're commonly referred to as the doctrines of grace, because they highlight God's grace in salvation of sinners. You could really summarize it this way. I think it was G. I. Packer who said you could summarize... Uh, the doctrines of grace this way, or Calvinism this way. God saves sinners. And so we, I, I really took six points rather than the common five because I wanted to have a point on the beginning to talk about uh, specifically the sovereignty of God. So the three points we covered last week, were the, or two weeks ago, were the supremacy and sovereignty of God. This is the idea that God is the supreme and primary being. It's all about him. All things exist for his pleasure uh, and to accomplish his purposes. God is sovereign over all things. So, so nothing comes to pass without God say-so. We believe he has a plan for all things. It's a good plan, a wise plan. He leaves nothing to chance. That, that everything that does come to pass, even the choices of man, are according to his unchanging counsel and decree, which he made before the foundation of the world. So we talked about that. That's the basis, that God is numero uno. He's number one. But secondly, we talked about the idea that of the extent of the effect of sin on man. We talked about how it is far worse than we think it is, that, that mankind is not just merely sick or wounded or in need of assistance. If so, then God would not have sent his son. He would have sent a self-help book. Honestly, he would have sent, the law would have been sufficient if sin weren't all that bad. But the scripture paints a very bleak picture of just how bad sin is. That sin has corrupted every single aspect of our lives. It has affected our mind, our thinking, so we don't think as we ought to. Our heart, so we don't desire what we should. Our will, so we don't make good decisions. It affects our body. Our bodies are decaying and dying. It affects our spirits. It affects everything Every single part of us. The Bible uses strong words like in Ephesians 2 saying that we are dead in our sins and trespasses. And Romans uh, chapter 3 says, you know, no one seeks after God. You know, all have become, and he uses phrases like altogether worthless. I mean, so it's really bleak, right? But the point of that is it's the, we need to understand the seriousness of our condition so that we can understand the goodness of the grace of God. And we need, I think that's one thing that Scripture points out. All right. And one of the things that is really important for our purposes is that sin has put us in a, in, a, in a relationship of hostility towards God. The human heart is unwilling and incapable of voluntarily submitting to God. We have a, that raised fist, you know that, you know that stubbornness that just does not want to seek after God. Um, and so that is part of the extent of the effect of sin on man. And that should really lead us to think well, if that's the case, why would anybody, you know, how can anyone respond to the gospel? How can anyone come to God? So this leads us to our, the third point we talked about, which is the grace of the Father and election to salvation. The scripture teaches a doctrine called election. You come across words like election, chosen, predestination, things like that. We believe that before the foundation of the world, And according to his own counsel and will, not due to anything God saw, not because God saw that certain people would have faith or certain people would respond to the gospel or that certain people would be really good Christians or that certain people were better than others, nothing in us, but God, according to his own counsel, God the Father lovingly chose some from every people group, every tribe, tongue, and nation, out of fallen humanity, and those he would save through Jesus Christ, so that he might make known to them the riches of his glory and grace. Those whom he has not elected to salvation, he has chosen to leave in their fallen state to face his just wrath. So that was a, a big topic we talked about. But one of the things we learn is is it's not the ultimate deciding factor of who is in God's heaven, who will who will actually come to Christ, is not primarily our choice of him. That that is a real thing, and we'll talk about that later. We actually do respond to the gospel, but it's ultimately because God has chosen us. And so if you wanted to hear more, we'll talk, all of this flows together. All this will weave together. We'll refer back to these things. But uh, if you have not yet had a chance, please do listen to the seminar from last time to get some more info on that. So that was the background. Tonight we're going to cover cover the final three points, and that is we're going to talk about the grace of the Son in his atoning death for the elect. I know that sounds very wordy. I'll make it make sense the best of my ability. We'll talk of the grace of the Spirit in his application of redemption. And we'll talk of the the grace of a faith that will result in salvation. So with that said, I'm going to go ahead and pray again and ask the Lord uh, for help. Would you join me? Lord, as we gather and talk about these things, Lord, I can't help but feel a, a slight tremble Lord, because I feel like I'm dealing with with deep things that can easily be misunderstood. But Lord, but also, Lord, you've revealed because they bring you great glory. Help me, Lord, to speak with clarity and conviction, with humility, Lord, but also to uh, communicate clearly what Scripture says in such a way that it can be understood and believed and result in people having greater faith and bringing you more glory. Lord, please, please be with us in this time. Nourish our faith. Give us minds to be able to understand these things and hearts to receive them. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, maybe I set myself up poorly, but I'm starting off tonight with the most difficult of all the points. um, Which is number four, the faithfulness of the Son. Um, Jesus unfailingly saves all whom the Father gave him. I'm going to hop down to our expanded doctrinal statement first, and then I'll give a definition of what I'm talking about here. Our, Our doctrinal statement for Living Hope says, at point seven, that God's Son died to accomplish the forgiveness of sin and rose from the dead to accomplish the infilling of new life applied by faith. God, motivated by love and justice, transferred human sin onto Jesus at his death, poured out his just punishment, and accomplished the forgiveness of sins. And through the resurrection of Jesus, those who were spiritually dead are born again into a victorious new life, which is eternal. Through faith in the gospel, believers are united with Christ in his death and resurrection. And as their substitute, his redemptive work is counted as their own. That should all sound very familiar. So let me read a definition of uh, of what I mean when I say the grace of the Son's atoning death for the elect. God the Father gave his elect people to the Son in order to secure their salvation. And it is for them specifically and effectually that Jesus fulfills his high priestly work of atonement and intercession. While there may be a general aspect of the atonement that benefits all men, this does not result in salvation for all men. So, Let me give a little disclaimer. First of all, some of that might have been gobbledygook, and that's okay. We're going to take it bit by bit, and we'll explain it, what those words mean. But of all the five points of Calvinism, as it's sometimes grouped together, this is the one that causes the most debate, even amongst people who are Reformed, even amongst people who are all on board. Um, This is the one that tends to cause the the most debate. And if if anyone ever says, I'm not a five-point Calvinist, I'm a four-point Calvinist, I know exactly which one they're talking about. It's this one. (laughs) Don't even have to say it, okay? Um... And, and, and this is the one that people often wrestle with. And so sometimes it's called uh, limited atonement. But I think a better uh, way to describe it is definite atonement or particular redemption. And it's answering this question, because this is, this is what we're talking about. Did Christ die for every single person on planet Earth, without exception, making salvation possible for everyone, but certain for nobody? Or did Christ die in place of the elect only in order to secure their salvation? That may be a question you've never thought about. You're think, or you heard the first one, you're like, that sounds right. And then the second one never even came up, this idea that, that Jesus died specifically for people, a certain people, in order to secure their salvation. The reason why this is difficult is because there are passages in Scripture that seem to indicate both. All right, And so I'm going to go through some of them. One the first section is there are passages that really strongly seem to indicate that Jesus' death is universal in extent. So, John one twenty nine, the next day John the Baptist sees Jesus coming towards the moment. What does he say? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Pretty universal, right? Of course, John three sixteen for God so loved the world. You know he did everything he did in order that the world might be saved through him. First Timothy two three through six says, this is good and it's pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. By the way, what's good and pleasing is praying for all people. It says, who desires all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony of the proper time. 1 John 2, 2, he is the propitiation for our sins and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. The Samaritans in John 4.42 say this is indeed the Savior of the world. Right? 2 Corinthians 5.14 says that uh, the love of Christ controls us. We've concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Amen. These passages really seem to indicate that, that Jesus' death is in some sense, at least, for all people. But there's other passages that seem to, to limit what Jesus is actually trying to do with his death, what he's actually trying to accomplish by it. In Matthew 1:21, um, prophecy saying, and she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. John chapter 10, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. There's a specific people he's laying his life down for. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. I lay my life down for the sheep. It seems to be indicating he's laying him down for the sheep, but not the goats. Acts twenty twenty eight. Paul is uh, talking to the Ephesian elders. He says, "Be careful. Be careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Take care." For the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Where Jesus, where the blood is seen to being effectually for the church of God. First Peter 2.24, he himself bore, bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Uh, later on, we'll kind of talk about why, why is that significant that Jesus died for our sins? Why is that important? Colossians 2, and you were dead in your... Tre- in your trespasses, in the uncircumcision of your flesh, sorry, and, and you who were dead in your trespasses, God made alive with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Now I know I just read like a lot of scriptures, <laughs> but I want to point out there are some scriptures that seem to be very clearly indicating that Christ's work has a universal aspect to it. That Jesus died, he's the savior of the world, he died for all, things like that. But there are other passages, and I didn't include all of them on either side, that seem to indicate that what Jesus was doing was, was something more, I don't want to say limited, but more focused, more particular. He was actually trying to accomplish something for a smaller group of people. And so there's a few questions I think we need to ask. What was the mission that the Father sent the Son to accomplish? You notice how many times you're reading in, in particularly John's gospel where he says, like, I'm not here to do my will. I'm here to do the will of the Father who sent me. Like time and again, you know, and I, kept, I remember when I was younger thinking, but Jesus, you're God. Shouldn't you just make your own mission? And Jesus is very clearly saying, like, I say what the Father told me to say. I do what the Father told me to do. I'm here to do his will. And here's the second question. So what's the, what's the mission Jesus came to do, and did he accomplish it? Perfectly. What do we, when we say Jesus died for sins, whose sins? What, what does it mean when we say Jesus died for sins? Which really, what actually happened on the cross, right? What actually transpired? And I think the last question kind of related to this. If Jesus died for the sins of every single person without exception, if he actually covered the sins of everybody, then why isn't everybody saved? So we'll kind of get into that. So let me, let me just talk a little bit about the value of the atonement. We believe that Christ, uh, that the, the value of Christ's atonement that he suffered is unlimited. That is to say that Christ's death is sufficient to cover all the sins of every person on earth. Like, like his blood is the, the value of his sacrifice. It's not like the blood of lambs and goats and, and, and birds and things like that of the Old Testament where they were very, very limited. They couldn't really do anything. But this is to say um, that ha- this is basically saying that had God so designed it, if God wanted to save everybody, that there was nothing more that Christ had to do. It's not as though, well, if Christ wanted to save everybody, he would have had to spend one more hour on the cross. He would have had to take a few more lashes of the whip. We're not saying that. We're saying that Jesus' death is sufficient. Um, it's because it's of infinite value, his death. But that's, that's really, really the question we have. It's, it's what is the intent of, of what Christ did on the cross. We, so It's one thing to acknowledge that Christ's death is sufficient to save everybody, right? Um, but it's another thing we believe that it was given with the intention to actually save the elect. We believe the purpose of sending Christ to die on the cross was not primarily to give everyone a chance to be saved, but to actually secure salvation for God's elect. I read John 10, I think 14, 15, a bit ago, where Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, I lay my life down for the sheep. Jesus seems to be saying like, there's a specific group of people. I'm the good shepherd and I know who my sheep are and I'm giving my life. I lay down my life for them. We believe that Christ's glory is not that he unlocked a door that that anyone may walk through, but it's that he ransomed his bride unfailingly. Right, that he redeems every name the Father gave him by his death and resurrection, and he upholds them by his intercession as high priest, and he'll lose none of them but raise them up on the last day. John 6, which I think I'll reference a few times tonight, is so important for this. He says, as I mentioned, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raised up on the last day. That one line is so important. Consider this, that there is a people that God has, the Father, has given to Jesus to save. And God's will is that Jesus would actually save those people, each and every one, without losing one of them. I should lose nothing of all that he has given me. So throughout the course of this life, none of them would fall away. He says, but I will raise it up on the last day. So it's like this group of people that Jesus dies to save. And that those same people are, this, are the people he's going to raise from the dead in glory. Consider also uh, Jesus' high priestly prayer in John 17. Let me read some passages to you from that. Jesus says, he's praying to the Father, he says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that your Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. Jesus has authority over everyone. But for a reason, he has authority over everyone so that he can give eternal life to the specific people God has given him to give eternal life to. Verse six, I have manifested your name to the people you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. This is very interesting, verse nine and 10. He's talking about his disciples on earth at the time, but it, it also refers, as we'll see, to believers after the time of Christ. He says, I am praying for them, I am not praying for the world. But for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All yours are mine, all mine are yours, sorry, and yours are mine and I am glorified in them. That is very interesting that Jesus flat out says, as in his high priestly prayer, I'm not praying for the entire world. I'm praying for those people that you gave me. Just like in the Old Testament, the high priest uh, would go with the, the na- wearing the ephod, bearing the, the names of the 12 tribes of Israel as he went into the Holy of Holies because he was offering sacrifices and interceding for Israel, not for Babylon, not for Assyria, not for Egypt, but for, his, for the people that he was given. Verse 12, "...while I was with them, I, they, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the Son of Destruction." that the scripture might be fulfilled. That all, all the apostles, all the disciples Jesus had, those whom the Father had given him, he kept them. That's part of his high priestly ministry. He intercedes for them through his prayers, keeping them in the faith, except for Judas. You know, both Judas and Peter fell away, right? And, it, and if you remember this, I think I mentioned this last time, that Jesus even said to Peter, Satan has asked permission to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you, that your faith may not fail. And when you return, encourage your brothers. So Jesus prayed for Peter. He did not pray for Judas. He was interceding for Peter. He was not interceding for Judas. In verse 20, he says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word." So he's kind of, everything he's just said is also continuing towards all of us, right? Those who, those who, uh, accept Christ later on. And so, th- so why is this, this is important? It's because we believe that the role of the high priest, even from the Old Testament pattern, is twofold. What, do a high, what does a high priest do? And Jesus is our high priest. They offer sacrifices and intercessions, prayers and sacrifices. And, but they, and those two things are linked. Those whom the priest offers sacrifices for are the same people he offers prayers for. Jesus here as high priest explicitly says, I'm not praying for the whole world. I'm praying for those, Father, whom you've given to me because every last one of them I will save. None of them will fall. And so we, have, so we say that Jesus is, it's, it's fitting and natural that his atoning work on the cross would be for those, and, and his ministry and prayer would be for the same people. Otherwise, Christ died for the sins of all, but only prays for the salvation of some. I have a little chart there. Uh, I'm not sure what page it's on, but you should see it there, the, page four, that I think I think might might be helpful. I think there's there's two ways, the two things we have to kind of keep in mind. The scripture kind of gives us uh, that we need to keep both of these as true. There's the there's the top a group of boxes which we're going to call general or common grace. This is what the scripture reveals about God's heart and God's work in the world generally. And to all these things, I say amen. These are all true. No, we're not. But, and then I have a line for maybe underneath it for things that are special or saving grace. Sometimes these are things that are kind of like what's going on behind the scenes. This is where God is pulling back the curtain and showing his, his secret will, what God has uh, foreordained from all eternity. And both of these things are true. So, for example, the scripture is very clear that God has a love for the world. That God has a love for all of his creatures. That all of his image bearers, he has a love for, right? But we, all, the scripture also says, we believe, as we talked about last time, that God has a unique love for the elect. That there are certain people that he has set his saving love upon, right? As we... Um, Maybe it was even this morning. I've got so many different scriptures in my, in my head right now. But God sends his reigns on the just and the unjust. Did you read that this morning? Yeah. So, so God is kind and, and loving towards all people, both the righteous and the unrighteous, those who will be saved and those who will not be saved. And yet there is a special saving love for a certain group of people that he has chosen. Right? In the same way, I can say, I love all the children of the world, but I, I love my own children more. <laughs> and that's okay. And God has chosen who his children are going to be. We believe that the second box there, that God has a desire for all men to be saved, right? That, that's clear in scripture, right? I, I even read that, that, that scripture earlier, that God does have a genuine, God does not delight in the death of the wicked, okay? Justice, like hell, is something that is real because God must judge sin, right? Because, and, and God is actually glorified when he brings justice. We, we all love justice. We wouldn't want to live in an unjust universe, Right? God desires all men to be saved. That's a true thing. And yet, at the same time, we believe that God has elected only some to be saved. He has not chosen everyone to be saved for his own purposes. We believe that, in some sense, Jesus is the Savior of the world, the third box there, right? That he, and we'll talk about what that means in a little bit here. But we believe in a more specific sense that Jesus was sent to secure the salvation of the elect, and lastly, as we'll talk about in just a moment, that the Holy Spirit gives, a, there is a general call. That the Holy Spirit's involved in the sending of preachers, the, the general preaching of the gospel, the, the conversations we have with our coworkers and neighbors and friends and Sunday school classes and, and books that are written. The Holy Spirit, you know, th- through people, gives a general call that may or may not be effective. People hear the gospel, and yet the Holy Spirit effectually draws the elect to faith. And that's kind of our next point we'll talk about. And all these things are true, and all of these things are in Scripture. And I think that it's very easy to just assume that the top row of boxes is true. And I would say, if if this word means anything, you know, that in in a more Arminian view, it's pretty much just the top box is true. But there's so many Scriptures that talk about these things in the bottom, and we believe both are true, right? And so we're going to talk... I, I, I want you to see that, that God, that God is a general grace, a common grace, a love for all people. But He also has a specific saving plan, um, His saving grace. So, the, so limited atonement is this idea that we can sit, talk about that Jesus, in some sense, you know, is the savior of the world, right? And that, and we'll talk about what that means. What are some options there? But that that God's plan primarily was not just to open a door to say, well, if anyone wants to come in, they can. But Jesus came to perfectly save each and every single person the Father had given him without fail. So when he says, I came to do the will of my Father, Jesus didn't come to say, well, I'll just try to save as many as I can, and it's up to them. But Jesus does his ministry and says, that, He even glories in that when he's praying in the high priestly prayer, I lost none of them, Father, except for the son of perdition. But even that was planned. That when, Je- when it's all said and done, Everyone whom Jesus resurrects in the last day will people that, that he perfectly atoned for, that he perfectly interceded for, and there'll be no one missing, no empty spots. So let's talk about why this doctrine, I believe, is precious, then we'll talk about some other things related to it. I think this is very, very, a very personal doctrine. And as I mentioned, this this can be a challenging thing for us, but I will say it. God does not love all people equally. This, I mean, Jacob I loved, Esau I have hated. God had love for Israel that he did not have for Egypt or the Canaanites. And he may have had love for the Canaanites, but he certainly did not save them. God does love all of his image bearers, and we should never not say that. We should should hold that as true. God loves his image bearers, but we shouldn't say he loves everyone equally or in the same way. Does he love his saints in heaven in the same way he loves reprobates in hell? I think you'd have to do some mental gymnastics to get there. God has a love for his creatures, but he sets his saving love specifically on some who he has chosen to give the life of his son to in order to save. And and this is what is so sweet about this, is that salvation is then very, very personal. Jesus did not die for a program. He died for people. He went to the cross with names inscribed on his palms. With specific sins that he died for. He didn't suffer for a formless, nameless mass, but he took to the cross all the names that were written in the book of life from before the foundation of the world. And that's the way scripture tends to speak about the death of Christ, that he died in order to save, not to make men savable, but to save, to actually accomplish salvation. Right, And, and I think that that, you know, Paul even picks up on this, right, that God, even as Jesus does all things for the sake of the elect, Paul kind of picks up on that, and he says, remember, in Second Timothy 2, remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead, the offspring of David, which, pause, that's really like a great, like, summary of the gospel. Jesus Christ risen from the dead, the offspring of David. Jesus is Lord and Savior. As preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Listen to this, what Paul says. I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Paul says, hey, I am suffering in jail. I've been shipwrecked. I've been beaten. I've been kicked out of cities. I've been you know, maligned. He said, and he's, he says, I'm doing this. Because God has a people. And I don't know who they are. I'm going to preach the gospel to everyone, but knowing that God is unfailingly going to save them. I I suffer all this for the elect. It's hard to believe that Paul has that attitude, but Jesus doesn't. Secondly, though, why this doctrine is so precious is that it's effective. Jesus' death is effective. It's not wasted in any way. We believe in something called substitutionary atonement. Jesus died in my place. I should have been there. You should have been there. But Jesus actually died there. And this means that Jesus took my place in the cross, that he was broken and crushed, not generically for sins, but for actual sins. The wrath of God was poured out on my sins, and the perfect payment was made for them all. No, No doubt, the application of that is in time, like I received the benefit of that when I came to faith in Christ. But full payment was made at the cross for my sins. It's encouraging to think that salvation in that case wasn't just potential, but effective. Thirdly, this idea of of that Jesus' death, the intent of the atonement, was to save the elect effectively, is that it's just. The other option is universal atonement. And I want you to hear what this means. This means that the idea that Jesus died and paid for all the sins of everybody that's ever lived. And I think that actually has some problems when you kind of start thinking it through. If Jesus died in everyone's place as a substitute, hold on, and listen to this, and actually paid for their sins, like he suffered the wrath of God for everyone's sins, and then why does anyone go to hell? Because their sins are paid for, right? Supp- so, but suppose a universal atonement for a moment, that Jesus died for all everyone's sins, we say, well, well. if someone doesn't believe, then it, it doesn't count. Well, if one doesn't believe, we know that they do not have their sins forgiven and, and must bear the punishment of their sins, right? But, but think that through for a second. Then, there, then if, if that person goes to hell, are they also being punished for their sins? Is, is God then punishing people twice for the same sins? If Jesus died died for a sin of adultery that someone committed, and he actually paid for that sin, but someone never believes, did Jesus pay the punishment of that sin or not? Or, and you say, well, is it it revoked? So it's actually, what, what actually happened? I think it would actually make God unjust. But there's a further problem. Let's say that everyone's sins are already paid for by Christ, but people go to hell only because they don't believe. That's kind of the thing. Well, it, 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 people only go to hell for the sin of unbelief. That, that's usually what's taken. Jesus died for all the sins of everyone, but people it's the sin of unbelief that people go to hell for. I don't, I don't think that's actually what Scripture indicates, that we actually bear the punishment of our sins. But the, the further question would be, is unbelief a sin? Did Jesus die for the sin of unbelief, or did he die for all the sins except for unbelief? In which case, Jesus didn't die for all sins. So so I'm saying, this sounds like it's like a logical problem, but it kind of is. What do we mean when we say, he died for all? It has to mean something. Someone put it this way, a universal atonement is like a wide bridge that goes halfway across the river. (laughs) Okay? But a definite atonement, it has room enough for everyone, but only goes halfway across. A definite atonement is a narrower bridge, but it goes all the way across. Fourthly, we believe one reason why this is a sweet doctrine is because we believe it's finished. That God did not leave it up to sinners to decide whether or not Christ's death would be effective. He did not leave it up to sinners whether Christ would complete his mission. This doctrine highlights that God accomplishes all his will and leaves nothing to chance or the whims of sinful people. It's not as though God is up there saying, well, I'm going to send my son and I'm going to let him suffer and die and just... Really hope someone likes that message and and believes. And then Jesus dies for as many people as possible, you know. but it's really up to people still. And the Holy Spirit comes and he he tries to convince as many people as possible. You can really get very closely in a posture where God is at the whims of humanity, rather than being sovereign and, and in charge, that really what God wants to happen is really contingent on sinful man. I think there's some problems with that. So we have to ask, you know, does Jesus fulfill the mission to God the Father gave him? I think, I think he did. I think Jesus died, you know, you can say, and we'll talk about what it means that he's the Savior of the world in just a moment, but I think that the intent of the atonement ultimately was that he would secure the salvation of every single person the Father had given him so that none of the elect would fall away, but that he'd raise them up on the last day. He will save all that he was sent to save and lose none of them. So, what do we do with all these passages uh, that talk about Jesus being savior of the world? Um, well, I, I think we need to understand this. None, none but a universalist believes that everyone is actually saved, that Jesus actually saves every everyone in the world without without exception. all right? It's very clear that there is that there is a hell that, that, that you know that, is, that it broad is the the way that leads to destruction, and many find it. I mean Jesus is not lying about that, so clearly. When we say Jesus is Savior of the world, we, the Bible does not mean for us to believe that Jesus actually saves each and every single person. So there has to be some limit on it, right? There's some limiting, limiting factor to what is meant by world and what is meant by all. In what sense is Jesus a Savior to those who are never actually saved? I think I want to say I want to take those passages seriously. I don't want to say, well, we got two groups of passages and I'm just going to believe these and ignore the other ones. Like, no, no one should do that. Okay? We should take all of what scripture says and see to believe it to the best of our ability and some passages are clearer than others. All right? But we but we want to take seriously the passages that speak of Jesus as a savior of all people. E but but what I wanted to point out with all of this is I wanted to emphasize something that is often not spoken of that Jesus' death Doesn't just make all people savable; he actually saves. He is death, actually secured salvation, but for a specific people. So here's some ways, um, and I'm giving several of them. These are these are almost like options, okay? But or some things to consider. You know, in what way is Jesus savior of the whole world? Well, Christ is the only savior sent in the world. There is no other. That's certainly one sense. He is the only way to salvation the world has. His is the name that all must turn to for salvation, and any who do will be saved. In that sense, he is, the savior the, he is the only Savior the world has offered to them. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. We believe that Jesus is the Savior of the elect who are in the world, in every part of the world, from every part of the world, every tribe, tongue, and nation. He's not just the Savior of Israel. And, and truthfully, some of the passages that refer to all or all men or, or all nations or all in the world actually are referring to like Jews and Gentiles. Not all of them, but a lot of the passages are really saying all, not with all people of all time without exception, but all people groups, all kinds of people, all nations. It's not, and it, you've got to realize it. we're going from the Old Testament into the New Testament. God's covenant went from one people group, from one bloodline to it's open to all people groups now. Um, yep, so uh, so uh, Christ is the savior of all the elect who are in the world, he's, but he's not just the savior of one nation or one people group. I will say this, he has bound Satan so the gospel can go to all nations. So I would say this, every unbeliever in the world benefits from the fact that Jesus is king, so Satan's uh, power is limited, all right? Christ, I would say, that, this is something I read which I thought was interesting. Christ's death purchases a stay of execution for everybody but full pardon for the elect. Because what is, what is part of what he's doing, propitiation is, is a turning away of God's wrath. And someone, I heard something else as I was, or read something else I was studying, this idea that you know, the problem is not that, you know, some people go to, heaven it's not, it's not that some people say. it's it's that why does anybody continue to take one more breath like why does god allow people who have rebelled against him to have one more day of breath and life and happiness and joy like why does god let people who have rebelled against him keep living on his world right? because he's gracious he's that's his common grace and so so someone said you know jesus's death maybe has some universal benefit that perhaps it purchased his common grace that is, it has purchased a stay of execution where God does not actually judge the sinner until their death. We believe that Christ is given, is given all authority on heaven and on earth by virtue of his mediatorial work. That Christ is reigning over the world as Lord. So sometimes the word Savior doesn't mean that he's actually rescuing from sin, but he's preserving. He's a Savior in that sense. He's keeping things going. Jesus is King. And no doubt there are many who do not believe in him, yet benefit from his benevolent reign over the world. Right? God, Jesus is preserving the world until all of his elect are saved. Right? That is why the world keeps on going, right? ultimately, because he's glorified in that. So likewise, uh, people benefit from the preserving presence of the church in the world, the buttress of truth and light. It's, it's not without reason that Jesus says, To to Christians, who's disciples, you are the salt and light. You are literally keeping things going. All right. God's people in the world are are preservatives, right? Are 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 standing up for truth and light or representing God in the world. Would you rather be next-door neighbors with a Bible-believing Christian or a pagan? Like, there there are benefits to Christ being saved in the world that are felt by all. Right? When Christians go to other nations and they proclaim the gospel and they build hospitals and they go on missions, and, like, there are benefits to that. We believe eschatologically Christ indeed will save the world. He is the Savior of the world because someday there will be a new heavens and a new earth. Christ will literally save the world from sin, death, hell, Satan, and, and every cause for sin. So yeah, in, in many ways you could talk about Christ as savior, preserver of the world. There are universal benefits that perhaps Christ atoned for, his atonement paid for. But we just want to emphasize that Jesus' death on the cross actually accomplished something. He actually secures the salvation of the elect that we talked about earlier on. But I know for, even amongst uh, people who, who are Calvinists, this is something that is, is challenging and it, it's debated back and forth. So if it's still kind of a like, oh, I need to think about that some more, That's okay. So as we continue, we'll talk about our fifth point, which is the power of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit brings life and salvation to the elect. And so if you've noticed, there's been a theme for the last few points. I talked about um, the grace of the Father in election, the grace of the Son in his death, the grace of the Spirit in the application. And that's one thing I actually want to highlight is that salvation is of God, and God does everything in Trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we believe, are working towards the same end. They're all working together to accomplish salvation. They all have specific tasks and ways they're, they uh, are involved. You know, so we talk about the Father primarily is talked about in, in election, the Father giving a people to the Son. The Son is the one among the Trinity who was sent. The Spirit wasn't sent to die for sins. The whole Jesus took on human flesh became a man uh, to die for sins, to to purchase our salvation, right? And the Holy Spirit was sent to apply that salvation to us so that we actually receive it and he seals us in it, right? And so that's all we want to say is that God is working specifically to save a specific people and that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit perfectly fulfill their, fan, their plan that nobody falls through the cracks it's not like all right god you do what you can son you do what you can holy spirit you do what you can we'll all just do the best we can and see what happens like that's what we don't believe is in the bible and so uh so let me read from our expanded doctrinal statement what we mean when we talk about what the spirit does number eight god rescues people from death into life based on his initiative and grace God distributes forgiveness and new life solely based on his own grace and not any merit or inclination of man. Desiring to glorify himself through his mercy and love, God chose some to have the blindness of sin removed, to receive the gift of faith and voluntarily accept the offer of salvation made to all people. Seeing fit to glorify himself through his justice and judgment, God leaves others in their natural state of sin, resulting in eternal death. So that's from our doctrinal statement. Let me summarize uh, what is sometimes called irresistible grace. Okay. This is the grace of the Spirit's application and redemption. God the Spirit was sent to apply the work of Christ to the elect. He, does this, he first does the work of regeneration, where he gives a new heart to the elect so that when they hear the gospel message, they're free of the enslaving power of sin and are able by God's grace finally to freely choose the gospel, and they will do so unfailingly. So once again, remember that chart? I talked about general general or common grace, and special and saving grace. We talked about how there is a general call of the gospel. Jesus makes this, right? He says in John 6, 35, "'I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst.'" In Matthew 11, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Romans 10 talks about the, the essential nature of preachers. How can people believe unless someone preaches the gospel to them? And how can a, you know, someone preach unless they're sent? And so, but it says at the beginning there, that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And so, Scripture teaches that there is a general call. And Christians, we should make a general call. We, don't, we never go to the pulpit saying... Now some of you are special, right? Some of you are elect, and I'm only speaking to you today, right? You know who you are. Like no one goes that way, right? We preach. There is, and it's specific that there is a general call given to all. We ought to do that, right? By the way, all the great Calvinist preachers did. All you know, all the during the uh, the Great Awakening, Charles Whitfield, Charles Spurgeon, you know, an amazing evangelist, believed all of this. You know, we should make a general call, as we're you know. Because it is good news for all people, right? We preach to everyone, urging them to repent, to believe the good news, believing that any and all who do call upon in the name of the Lord will be saved. We should do this passionately. We should do this with pleading, earnestly desiring their salvation, laboring with them. Right? We should make our appeal to Scripture. We should reason with them from the Word of God. We should answer tough questions. We should, we should be able to um, do some level of apologetics, giving a, a reason for the hope that's within us, praying for them. So in no way should the doctrine of election take away our passion or our zeal or our sense of pleading. Okay. Spurgeon said that the people will go to hell, but they should go to hell with our arms wrapped around their legs, right? trying to like pull them back. All right? So we have to we have to believe we have to understand that that not everyone does hear the gospel. By the way, that's a fact. There are people who will be born and will die in this world who will never hear the gospel. That is a bad thing. That is a tragic thing, right? And we desire, that's why we desire to go to every tribe, tongue, and nation, because Jesus has people in every tribe, tongue, and nation. But not everyone who hears the gospel understands it. There are some people that don't understand the gospel. And there are people who hear and understand it but don't believe it even though many do. But here's the question we're trying to answer. Why is it that some people believe the gospel and others don't? We'd say it's not, it isn't necessarily the quality of preaching, right? I will say, you know, Pastor Tim talked this morning about giving you know, an accurate assessment of yourself. There are times where I felt I gave a banger of a sermon. Okay, I thought, <laughs> surely someone's going to come to Christ, and there was nothing, right? And I've heard some bad sermons, right? where at the end, people came to Christ, and I'm like, oh, come on. (laughs) So it's not always the quality of the preaching. And honestly, praise God, because some of you are like, I can't share the gospel because I don't have all the answers, I'm not articulate. You know what? God uses weak vessels like us. We are jars of clay bearing a glorious message. So it's not necessarily the quality of the preaching or that we have all the answers or make the best arguments or the most articulate. It's not necessarily the experiences of the people. Well, some people have great experiences, some people have bad experiences. Some people will say, I, I'm not a believer because I, I had a bad experience at church. Maybe, but there's other people who have had terrible experiences at church and still believe the gospel. Like, you can't always say, well, everyone who's had a bad experience with church has, you know, they, they, they all, that's, that's why they don't believe. Maybe, maybe not. There are other, or it can't be even suffering. There are people who suffer tremendously and still cling to Christ through it. It can't just be upbringing. Like, oh, of course, people who are raised Christian, they're Christian. No. There are people that have this, have parent, you know, have Christian parents, Christian home. They go to VBS. Maybe they're homeschooled or private schooled or they just have a very in-depth, you know, devotional habit as a family. And you have siblings where some come to faith and some don't. It can't be necessarily level of comprehension. That Like, well, some people don't believe because, you know, they're just not intelligent enough or they, they lack the... Comp- Man, there's some eight and nine and 10-year-olds who know enough to say, I, I believe Jesus is king. You know, I want him to save me. I praise God for David Walmsley in our church. Right? Um, he struggles with Down syndrome, you know, but he, he loves the Lord, and I love his heart. I mean, it, you know, God delights to save him. Right? It's, so it's not a matter of just level of comprehension. Really, what is the reason why anybody believes the gospel? Because you remember our, 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 I guess it was our, our third point, was talking about, man, sin is so much worse. It has affected every single part of us. Why does anybody believe the gospel? We believe in something, there is a general call that is made to all people, right, who, hear, who do hear the gospel, but there is also behind the scenes, secretly in a hidden way, the effectual call or the the, the hidden drawing of God. Listen to what Jesus says in John 6. Jesus. By the way, I read that passage earlier, uh, John 6.35, Come, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. General call. Next verse is verse 36. But I said to you, you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. Say what? I mean, they, he's saying, hey, I, I've made a general call, and you're, not, and you're not believing me. You're not coming to faith. And he's telling them why. In verse 37, All the Father gives to me will come to me. Whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. By the way, general call there. And I will raise him up on the last day. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. So he's talking to people saying, hey, I've made the call, you're not believing, let me tell you why. The Father has not drawn you. It's impossible for you to come to me unless the Father has sent me and let, draws you to me. And I think there, there are times, by the way, Jesus, and I think even Paul says things, you know, not to like stick the knife in them, but like to use that as a means of drawing them, right? But notice that when we, this call is necessary, but it's also Effective. Jesus says no one can come to Christ apart from the Father's drawing, right? This idea that, the, that we are of ourselves unable to choose Christ, unwilling to choose Christ, apart from the grace of God because we have sinful, stubborn hearts. Which, by the way, Arminians believe this too. This is not a Calvinist thing. This is like, like this is Arminian thing too. They believe that God's grace is necessary for anyone to respond, However, an Arminian view says that there's something called prevenient grace, which means God gives grace to everyone. It's just like enabling grace, like that God gives grace to everyone who hears the gospel to uh, somehow allow them to respond. Honestly, I think it sounds good. I just don't think that's what scripture gives us. Because this enabling grace is not successful all the time. It kind of ha- works sometimes and not others, it would, it would appear. But I don't actually see evidence for this so-called enabling grace or pervenient grace in Scripture. Notice that in this passage, there's an unbroken chain of events. All the Father gives to me will come to me. Not most, not some, not half. All the Father gives to Christ will come to Christ. Christ loses none of them. He saves all of them and will raise all of them up on the last day. I think Jesus, by the way, talks about raising them up on the last day to say, hey, no one's going to fall through the cracks on the way there. It's not as though like, well, I'll justify them, but they'll fail at the point of sanctification. They'll get saved and then they'll get lost somewhere. No, all who come to Christ, he will see through to the end. We'll talk about that next. But likewise, no one comes to Christ unless the Father draws them. And all the father draws to Christ he will raise in the last day. So, so that, that's what's unbroken, right? He says, no one comes to me unless the father who sent me draws them. So there's a drawing that happens and all of the father, all of the father draws to Christ will come to him and he'll also raise them up. And so that's the same, the, the, those who the father gives the son and those who, the, who, who draw to the son and those who the son raises up are the same group and no one falls through the cracks. So it's not the idea, well, God draws everybody. Well, no, because it's an effective drawing. Everyone, no one can come unless God draws them to Christ, but everyone who does draw actually comes. So it's not a general thing. It's very specific, and it's effective. Listen to what John says later on in this chapter. And by the way, you may be thinking the same thing his disciples said, John 6.60. When his disciples heard this, they said, this is a hard saying. <laughs> who can listen to it? By the way, This is at the end of that where where Jesus says, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood. (laughs) And Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, that is why I have told you that no one can come to to me unless it is granted him by the Father. Consider that. Jesus says, no one can come to me unless it's granted by the Father, which seems to indicate there's people that God does not grant to come to the Son. Like we have to deal with the scriptures, right? But he says the flesh is no help at all. Faith does not and cannot arise from the flesh. Why? Because the flesh is sinful, right? You cannot be sanctified according to your flesh. You can try hard, but your flesh cannot produce faith, right? Because our sinful bodies, our sinful minds and hearts just don't want God to be God. There are no, there are no, no one can be, can be reasoned into the kingdom of God. Have you ever had a conversation where you're like, "I'm going to answer all your questions. I'm going to. I have a Bible verse for every single question." There are people who are just like, "No, I don't want to. I'd rather sleep with my girlfriend. I don't want to listen to what you have to say." And I use that on purpose. There are people who just, "Nope, I want to sin. I want to do what I want to do." And you have all the answers. And even if you answer all my questions, I still don't care. You know, no one can be persuaded by the, in the flesh. There are. But there's also no signs and wonders. Sometimes we think like, "Man, what, what if literally like." We went outside and, and a giant cross appeared in the sky. And, and Jesus said, I am real. Please believe in me. And surely, we could, okay, come outside with me. Let's look at this. Then surely they believe, right? You know, or like you know, a, a cloud by day or fire by night. <laughs> then surely they would believe, right? Jesus says, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should raise from the dead. Like there are people who saw Jesus rise from the dead or saw the tomb was empty and be like, no, I still don't want to believe (laughs) because the flesh is no help at all. But the effectual calling of God the Father to the Son through the Spirit is based on election. Those whom the Father chose before the foundation of the world, he draws to his Son so that they will believe. They believe because they're chosen and called by God. And any others, even though they hear the gospel clearly or see signs or wonders, they just will not believe. Which, by the way, is also part of the general call. The general call, it's true. If anyone would believe, they would come to Christ. But actually further serves to condemn. I'm standing right in front of you. You hear the gospel. You hear about Jesus. And it just demonstrates how sinful someone's heart is. John 10, 25 Jesus says, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe. Why? Because you're not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. Their sheep before they be, is the reason why they believe. Those who belong to Christ come to him. So how does God work within us to bring about faith? And this is actually a very, very unique thing. Only Reformed theology talks about this, right? But regeneration, being born again, precedes conversion. Do you guys remember when Jesus is talking to uh, Nicodemus in, in John chapter 3? You know, and uh, he goes at nighttime because you know, he's, he's, he's in the Sanhedrin. He doesn't want to draw attention. And he, he, says, he says something innocuous, like, teacher, I know that you're a great teacher. And Jesus like, completely ignores whatever he says, and he just looks at him and he says, truly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And then Nicodemus is like, what, what, what are you talking about? Can a man be born when he's old? Can, you can't enter into the womb a second time, which is just weird. He's even bringing this up, but, but clearly Nicodemus has no idea what he's talking about. And Jesus says, truly, truly I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, Water, they're probably talking about, hey, not just physical birth, spiritual birth. Unless one is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of spirit is spirit. So do not marvel, I say to you, you must be born again. I remember always thinking growing up, it's like, yeah, you believe in Christ and then you're born again. This text actually says it's the other way around. You can't even see the kingdom of God. Or enter it, which you enter in the kingdom of God by faith, unless you are born again. Regeneration is the work of the Spirit in which He brings people to life, freeing them from the deadness of sin, which results in them receiving the gospel. It precedes repentance and faith and leads to it. And when it occur, when does this, this occur? Well, I mean Jesus says, "Hey, the wind blows where it wishes. You hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes." So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Jesus says, I'm just not going to tell you. <laughs> the Spirit does what the Spirit does in that regard. Um, regeneration is the work of the Spirit, and it seems that the Spirit brings people to life when they hear the gospel, it, it, prior to the moment of conversion. And the effect seems to happen all at once. Right? That Oftentimes there's a general call. Somebody's hearing the gospel, in some sense being preached to them, Right? They, there is regeneration. The Holy Spirit now does an inward call. He says, now is the time to come from death to life. He calls you and all of a sudden you are regenerated. Your, your heart has now gone from death to life. The blindness of sin has been removed. The callousness has been taken out. As Ezekiel says, you know, this is a promise of the new covenant in the old, he says, I will give them one heart. I will put a new spirit within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh. And I will give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them. And they shall be my people and I will be their God. Again, Ezekiel twenty thirty-six, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh. I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and carefully obey my rules. It says your heart is hard, it's cold, it's dead, it's sinful, it'll never believe, so I'm going to give you a new heart. And then you'll believe. And so it all seems to kind of happen at once. The general call, regeneration, and then, oh, I, I want to believe, and then we somebody believes. Their, 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 their conversion, they repent and have faith, they are justified, adopted, and they receive the Holy Spirit. That may all happen within the, 10 seconds you know in our time but you know like there's a lot happening there when we're saved the new birth is kind of like a spiritual resurrection Ephesians 2 1 says we're dead in trespasses and sins the spirit gives us life he calls us from the grave consider this if you want an analogy to what this is like consider what Jesus did with Lazarus he went to the tomb he said Lazarus come out was Lazarus able to come out on his own Of course not. I can't walk to a cemetery right now and say, come out, you know, because they're dead and dead people can't choose to live. And then Jesus commands life and he gives it. He says, Lazarus, come out. And he raises us from the dead. And then Lazarus does come out. And the same way, there's a gospel call that goes out. Come, have life. I'm the bread of life. Receive it. You'll have eternal life. And then Jesus, you know, God, the father, by the Holy Spirit says, come to life. And so he raises, uh, and, and he raises us from the dead, so that we willingly receive the gospel. This does question. Well, hold on a sec. Sometimes people struggle with this. Well, what about free will? Is this God forcing us to love Him? That doesn't seem. Like, <clears throat> doesn't love have to be chosen? This seems like God's violating our will. I don't necessarily want to go too long into this, but I think once again, as I've mentioned multiple times. I think sometimes we assume that we have a free will as a given and forget what the Bible says about our will, you know, that we are. We have a a will affected by sin. The Bible does not present us as being independent of God or, you know, of God's plan. or like We're not neutral. We've already talked about how our will is actually afflicted and affected by sin, you know. Um, So I actually don't like the phrase free will. Uh, I don't think it actually reflects what the Bible says about our wills. I think we have... I think we have agency. I think we have a true and voluntary will, as we sometimes say. I think we make decisions based on what we want to do. We're not mindless robots. God's not a marionette. Is that what that is when you play with the puppets? But the fact of the matter is our will desires sin and not God. So we need, we need God to come in and renew our wills. As an example, have you ever met a drug addict or an alcoholic? I mean, like, and not someone who's like baseline. I mean, like somebody who is really a deep addict right? What do they always say when you suggest they have a problem or like, hey, I think you should quit. I have this under control. I can quit anytime I want to. I just don't want to, right? You've probably seen that, if nothing else, on TV, right? Um, everyone in the world around this person you know, can see you have a problem. You are addicted. You think you're in control. You do not have control. You think you're making free choices. You are enslaved to this thing, Right? And everyone around them can see it, except the addict, right? In the same way, fallen man is inescapably addicted to sin. You know, Jesus, Jesus says, whoever sins is a slave to sin. And yet we go around saying, what about free will? We don't have a free will in the same way we sometimes think. We're not morally neutral. The problem isn't that we don't have freedom of choice. We do, we just like sin, <laughs> We just choose sin. We don't choose God. We use that freedom to choose sin instead of God every time because we think we have a will, but we have a will enslaved to sin and Satan. That's why the general call is not enough. That's why it's not enough to hear the gospel, right? But thanks be to God, he effectually draws us and sets us free from sin in order to believe the gospel. Romans 6, do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one to whom you obey? Either sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, you've become slaves of righteousness. You have a new master. So does God override our will? Well, yes. But it's not bad. Listen, I love this quote um, from Greg Forrester. He says, It is true that in a, on a Calvinistic view, the Holy Spirit does not ask our permission before working this change in our hearts. But the change that he works is a change that makes us more free, not less. The natural man in the flesh is not free to accept the gospel because he can't, because he won't. And God frees us from the blindness of sin, from the callousness of sin, from the stubbornness of sin, and says, I will put a right spirit within you so that we actually see the gospel as good and we actually want it. And and, and God does it at different times in our lives, right? He has the ability to override our wills when he chooses and he sovereignly decides when that happens. And for some people, they hear the gospel one time and God opens up their hearts and like, yes, I want it. Other times, people hear it again and again and again and again. They grow up in it. They leave the church for 10 or 20 years. They come back later. They hear it again. And God says, Come to life. Hear it for the first time. And then they hear it and believe it. And oh, my goodness. And so, I, for some people, this is the easiest one to believe. Because you're like, Yes, I, I felt like that was my story. You know, like I, I feel like the God chased me down. Right? So, uh, yeah, we believe that. God rules over the will of, of, of people you know, externally by their circumstances and internally as well. But yeah, this, this is just a good thing to consider. This is, this is a good, some glory in this, uh, in this doctrine. It's humbling, right, that you would not believe had God not, God not made you willing. So none of us can be like, I'm in heaven and you're like, I made the right decision. <laughs> did you really? Yes, you did. But God had to give you an entire, he had to give an entirely new heart for you to make that. Decision. So yes, we willingly, voluntarily do that. We Yes, I chose. I chose Christ. I believed. But it's because God gave me faith. Because God gave me a heart that was willing. Right. And and you would not believe had God not made you willing. But as you can attest, it feels like for many of you that you didn't see God, but He chased you down. And he pulled you out of the pit. You were running into the street, and God said, "Nope." And he pulls you back. I grew up in a Christian home, uh, right around middle school, I started just kind of doing my own thing, said, so I'm going to just kind of start experimenting with what the world has, and I started getting into drugs and partying and things like that, and I thought everything was, you know, great, and I was having a fun time, I had, I, it was just total cognitive dissonance between like the life, I was like going to church on Sunday, partying on Friday, saw no problem with it, right, and then one day God just said, enough's enough, he just woke me up. I was not seeking after God. I wasn't like, God, is this okay? He said, Matt, this is not okay. It's time to stop. And it just, oh. Like, it, like I came to my senses is what it felt like. And for many of you, you can say the same thing. You know, it, it's like, you know, maybe it feels like what, what God did with Saul. Saul was the persecutor of the church. Jesus said, enough's enough. And I, actually, he made Saul blind so that he could see in that case. But yeah, we believe that those whom the Father has chosen, those whom the Son has died for, He will effectually call so that they will willingly believe. So that's that third one, fifth one, wherever we're at. Um, our last section uh, that we'll kind of roll into and still have some time for a few more questions. Uh, the unbreakable chain, the perseverance or preservation of the saints. For sake of time, I'm going to uh, skip a few things here, but... A definition of what we're talking about is the grace of a faith that will result in salvation. All the Father has chosen, the Son has ransomed, and the Spirit has redeemed will not fall away, but are kept in the faith by the power of God. All who are saved will remain in faith until the end and will be raised up on the last day. This is a great belief. This is a great hope, right? That those who are saved cannot lose it, cannot forfeit it, it cannot be taken from them. There are actually many who believe that you can, and we'll talk with some of those verses a little later on. Um, But we believe that we are kept by the power of God, right? And this this is a fear for many Christians. You know, am I really saved? Or, or, or if you're a Christian who's maybe gotten into a pattern of sin, or like who has who walked away from fellowship in church for a number of years and starts feeling disconnected from God, and you're like, God, you know, is it done? Are we? Have we got divorced, have we, have we? Is this broken? It can cause anxiety. Uh, we even witness those who we've had fellowship in the church with, we've called them brothers and sisters in faith, and they leave the faith, and we wonder what happened. Can that happen to me? We believe that Scripture, though, is abundantly clear that those who are truly saved are saved forever, that they will persevere in faith to the end by God's grace and power at work within them. John 10:27. I have read this one, but it bears repeating. My sheep hear my voice, I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Jesus pretty much threw the gauntlet down right there. He drew a line in the sand and said, let's just try it. The Father and the Son have you. I can read John 6 just all day pretty much, but all the Father gives to me will come to me. I will never cast them out. And this is the will of him who sent me. I shall lose nothing of all that he has given me but raise it up on the last day. By the way, that passage, those two or three sentences are the doctrines of grace. Pretty much everything is there. The Father has a people He will give to the Son to save. That's election. The Son, they will come to the Son, all of them unfailingly. Effectual call. The son will never cast them out due to sins, for he has covered all of their sins, atonement. He's never going to get to a place where he's like, oh, I liked you for a while, but you've really, you've you need, you, you've just been in this problem for a while, I, I, I reject you now. And the son will lose none of them, but raise them up on the last day. He preserves them. All of this is one work of God, an unbroken chain. Romans 8.30 says, those who he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. There's no break in there. There's not, well, most of those I justified, I also glorified. Most of those I called, I also justified. No, it's all one work. One plan from beginning to end. That's why we can say God saves sinners. So a couple things, ways why we believe this is the fact. The Son intercedes for the elect. Christ Romans 8, Jesus is the one who died, more than that who was raised, Who is at the right hand, who is indeed interceding for us. I already talked about that passage where Peter, uh, Jesus prayed for Peter, and he was upheld. He came to faith again. Judas did not. So we believe the Son is interceding even now for us, which is a good thing. When you're like, man, I have not prayed for today, the Son did for you. Praise God, right? You, you woke up, and if you, have, you ever have an inclination to pray, to read the Scriptures, to obey God, if you ever have a thought towards God, it's because the Son and the Spirit are in your seating for you. The Spirit seals us for salvation, so the Spirit's involved as well. Ephesians 1, In Him, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is a seal that cannot be broken. He says, this one belongs to God. And that seal will not be broken. He is a pledge to what God is... And the Holy Spirit is given to you as a pledge to what you cannot lose. What you will receive in full on the day of Christ. It says that God keeps us through a certain means, right? He keeps us in salvation through our faith. First Peter talks about that. We are being guarded through our faiths. So it's not just like man... If I keep faithing, if I keep up faith, then I'll keep myself in. It's like, no, God is keeping you. He's guarding you through the means of faith as an instrument. It's not the cause, it's the means of you being saved. But Also, there's passages that talk about believers already possessing eternal life. John 6, 47, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. Not might have, not will probably have, not have but can lose, you already have it. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has, has eternal life. He does not come into judgment but has passed from death to life. Believers are said to already possess eternal life. If a believer could at any point lose it, could you actually say you had eternal life? Or you had temporary life. No believer could actually ever be spe- could ever be said to have eternal life in the present. It'd be well, we'll wait and see. You will get eternal life someday, but that's not what Jesus says. He says you've passed from death to life. You have no co- there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You have eternal life now. The Spirit seals it. We're justified. Right? I Just read Romans eight one. Justified believers cannot be condemned again. Eight one. there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If, you, if you've been justified, you're declared not guilty. Now, it's promised. Is God gonna then going to say, never mind, your sins are back on your own head and you are unjustified? Then God would not be just. Romans 8, again, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Once again, there's some gauntlet throwing down there. Who is to condemn? Christ is the one who died more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. Jesus died for all our sins, not pre baptismal sins, not sins up until you're 30, not sins except for the ones that are really bad. If you're justified, he died for all of your sins. What great sin can the blood of Christ not cover if we're justified by faith and then fall away and lose salvation? Are we then unjustified? Uh, so we believe that we're justified, he we can't lose that. We believe also that God's glory is tied to the salvation of his elect. God's glory is revealed in him being able to actually accomplish his will. Jesus' glory as the Son, when he prays, Lord, rest- restore to me the glory I had with you before the foundation of the world, you know, is contingent on him doing the Father's will. Perfectly. I will lose none of them is what he said. If on the last day Jesus is un- unable to raise up to salvation even one whom the Father had given him to save, if he fails just raising one, then he's failed to do the Father's will. He's failed the mission the Father has given him. Let that sink in for a second. <laughs> is, can Jesus fulfill the will of God? Can he do the mission he was sent for? Christ Jesus will keep you in the faith for his namesake. And for that reason, he has, as Philippians 2 tells us, he has the name that is above every name. I love this quote from Jonathan Edwards in his classic, just, I don't know what to say, just listen to it. God will sooner just at one blow destroy all the wicked of the world than that one of his saints should be lost. If you are assured of your conversion, you may withal, be assured that God, the Supreme Lord of heaven and earth, sets a higher value upon you And upon all the reprobates of the world, that God has set so high a value upon you that he has given the blood of his own son for your ransom. God's glory is tied to him being able to save the people he set out to save. That said, there are some warning passages. There are some passages that seem to indicate warning against falling away. Hebrews uh, 6, 6, 4-6. says, it's impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, have shared in the Holy Spirit, have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance. Since they are crucifying again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. There's some warning there. Hebrews 3.12, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. And I have, Hebrews famously has about five or six warning passages. I've had them listed there. You know, 1 Corinthians you know, 1 and 2 talks about remind them, you know, you know, to stand in the faith which they received by which they're being saved, right? Unless they believed in vain, You know, Paul writes the Galatians. He says, "Hey, if you you are severed from Christ, if you be justified by the law, you've fallen away from grace. If you if you all of a sudden think that circumcision, you add that to the gospel, you think that's going to save you, you've fallen away from grace." Um, I have another passage there that looks like it's a typo um, from Luke. So yeah, so these and other passages seem to give the impression that true believers can lose their salvation. What do we do with those? Right. I would say that in most cases, these need to be addressed on a case-by-case basis. They're all addressing a different audience. In the epistle to the Hebrews, and and I think also Galatians, he's writing to a formerly Jewish people who are now considering Christ, who might be tempted to go back to Judaism. He says, no, 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 don't go back to that, right? However, I offer the following responses uh, to address the claims generally. Number one is that if the other doctrines of grace concerning election, predestination, atonement, and justification, if everything else I've talked about is true, then this is necessarily true. Okay. So that we have to keep that in mind. It's just logically, if God has done everything else through election, sending the Son, dying for your sins, the effectual call, if all of that is true, then would God say, but you can actually lose it. It doesn't seem like it would fit. Secondly, though, there's an abundance of clear verses that speak of God's faithfulness to keep believers saved until the end. I read several of them that are, I think are pretty strong. The Son can keep you, the Father can keep you, the Spirit has sealed you, you have eternal life. Um, and so I think that any warning passage we read should be read in light of these other passages. Thirdly, believers can fall away temporarily, but not totally we do believe that God will bring them again to repentance. God, God does allow his people to wander from time to time. There are times when God releases us for a while and he allows us to wander on our own. and Sometimes that's very painful for us. You know? But it shows us that when God removes his hand even a little bit for us, we very quickly go back to our sin. And sometimes God lets us wander in sin for a while so that we'll say, oh, God, I need you that much more. However, we believe while God allows us to wander, the elect, will, he will always bring back the fold. He will leave the 99 to go after the one. Still, we should take the warning seriously about falling away. Spurgeon, as always, has a great quote. He says, A believer is like a man on a ship. He may fall again and again on the deck, but he will never fall overboard. Fourthly, even though, we, even though believers cannot finally fall away, that should not make us cavalier. I'm elect. I can't fall away. I'm just going to coast. I can't lose it, so I'm just you know I can do whatever I want. And believe me, some foolish, numbskull Calvinists have tried to go this route to the train wreck of their life and their faith. Falling into sin has serious consequences, even if it doesn't mean you can lose your salvation. There are many pastors who have been disqualified from ministry. Marriages have been broken. Financial ruin. Physical sickness it seems to be indicated in James. Uh, early death, including suicide, misery, loss of joy, loss of assurance, bondage to certain sins for a time. Like, there are serious things that happen when we fall away from living God, even for a time in a long season of sin. Sin has consequences. Satan loves to entrap us. So we should be watchful and take these warnings seriously, even if it doesn't result in, uh, in, the, in the loss of your salvation. In a similar way, you wouldn't say, like, my wife will never divorce me, so I can fool around as much as I want. I don't have to go to work. I don't have to pay the bill. No one would say that, hopefully, right? Because what would you do to your marriage in the meantime, right? In the same way, you don't mess around. We, we, we seek after God, saved us to save us from our sins, not so we can roll around in them with impunity. Number five, and this is really the thing all right? not everyone who professes belief is actually a believer. And this is something we have to come to grips with. Jesus said this himself. Not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. They'll say, But what? We did great things. We had a powerful ministry, right? We did all these, we did miracles. We did great things. And he says, Depart from me. I never knew you. We can actually have a kind of faith that is not saving. There are many in the visible church who are not in the actual church, they experience fellowship. They agree with a lot of the teaching. Maybe, maybe it's just the moral code. Maybe just people are friendly. Maybe they just like, agree politically with a lot of people who are in the church. <clears throat> maybe there's some reformation of life. Well, yeah, I used to you know, be bad with money and you know, now my marriage is better. Now it's like, And they, they just have uh, residual benefits. Maybe they experienced blessings of the Holy Spirit. Maybe someone prayed for them and, they re- and God answered the prayer of a righteous person and they were healed or they received blessings. It's actually exp- exp- possible to experience many of the blessings of God towards his church by proximity but not internally. And some people can even be used by God to accomplish his will, right? If God can speak through Balaam's donkey, <laughs> okay, cuz that's what, we want. what about, you know, even people who preached and, and had a following and people came to Christ through them even. <laughs> If God can use Satan to accomplish his good purposes, surely he can use a false believer. Such people tend to fall away because they cannot keep themselves in the faith by means of the flesh, because remember, the flesh is no help at all. And they have none of the preserving power of God to keep them. And these warnings in Scripture, I think, serve to encourage us to check to see if we really are in the faith. Sometimes these warnings are there for that very reason. Believers are strengthened, right? And false believers may actually come to real faith. There, there are people who get saved after they've been in the church for 20 years. Like, oh yeah, I grew up in church. I went to VBS. I was a Sunday school teacher. And then I heard the gospel and I believed and I actually <laughs> repented and believed. It happened. There was a, a friend of ours, I don't know where my wife is. I remember Zach Horsley's dad did that. He grew up in a church and was there for years, raised his kid in the church, went on mission trips, and then he heard the gospel. It was like, oh, and he came to faith. 2 Peter 1.10, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you'll never fall. Number six, falling away is a mark of false believers. Right, um, Continued faith until the end is a sign of confirmation once truly saved. So actually, sometimes you know, people fall away. It's actually a sign they were never saved in the first place. 1 John 2, talks about people who left their fellowship. He says, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might be plain that they were not of us. So, so, so one of the marks of, of false believers, they, they, they do tend to fall away. Number seven though, keep this in mind. So I say that, how should we respond when someone does fall away? Should we just question their salvation automatically? Should we say, well, they were never saved, or they were a believer or not a believer? Like, well, I think we should be cautious, right? When someone falls into sin, we should pray for and encourage one another to remain in faith. We should pray for them. We should seek them. We should uh, you know, seek to call them back to faith. If someone falls away, we should seek them to restore them to faith. That's why church discipline is there, right, in the church. It's not a, a punishment system it's a restoration system right there's even times where it talks about where i wish i had the reference off the top of my head but where it talks about we're turning somebody over to satan so they'll learn not to blaspheme like sometimes it says they just need to go out in the world for a while they're going to fall away for a bit so they'll come to their senses later and, really, and god will use that to bring them back so we should not despair while there's still time if someone we know appears to part from the faith do not despair because you don't know when God may bring them back. And it may be on their deathbed. I always remember the thief on the cross, right? Who knows what his life was like, whether he was always away from, you know, God, or if he had a a Jewish upbringing, we don't know. But if if Jesus can say, you'll be with me in paradise, the last hour of his life, he can bring someone back. So pray God would grant repentance. So I close this passage, uh, With a verse on God's unbreakable love, one of the sweetest passages in all of Scripture. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own Son, but gave him up for us all, how will we not also with him give us graciously all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it's written, for your sake we are being killed all day long, we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure. That neither death nor life, nor angels, angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. These are the doctrines of grace.